Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. On this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, a black man in rural 1897 Kentucky is accused of murdering a member of a local mob that had threatened his family. But he gets his revenge with some surprising help. At that time, the castle doctrine even outweighed race. Uh, Some people who might otherwise harshly judge a person of color in that era decided that that this was wrong, that you cannot penetrate a person's home. You cannot attack a person of any color in his home and get away with it. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenus. Great to have you here with me. I am pleased to have as my guest today Ben Montgomery. He is an award-winning author, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and a longtime newspaper reporter, spending most of his career with the Tampa Bay Times. Some of his past books include Grandma's Gatewood Walk, The Leper Spy, and The Man Who Walked Backward. And the book he is here to talk about today is called A Shot in the Moonlight, How a Freed Slave and a Confederate Soldier Fought for Justice in the Jim Crow South. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Eric. So let me start by asking you this. What inspired you to put these events into a book? I had been working on a very long project, investigative project for the Tampa Bay Times about uh, police shootings in the state of Florida. And this, interestingly, was something that was not measured by anyone, not by the government, not by police agencies. This is a nationwide issue. And it all came to light after the 2014 shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, which of course prompted some protests and some acts of civil disobedience and things of that nature. So we were engaged in this project and I was, I was collecting six years worth of shooting police shooting data from 400 different law enforcement agencies in the state of Florida 
and it amounted to somewhere in the neighborhood of 831 police shootings stretched over six years. And 40% of those shootings were police shooting black men. And if you can imagine just sort of being involved in a project that, that where so many cases end in tragedy and so many cases are unjust just from the perspective of, you know, a journalist, I got overwhelmed and I started actively looking for a story, you know, because I do newspaper work in the daytime and book work in the evenings and on weekends, I started looking for a story that didn't end in that kind of tragedy, a story where the person of color didn't get killed. And um, in fact, went in search of, you know, revenge or retribution. Uh, and I landed after lots of searching through newspaper archives, through historical records, I landed at the story of George Denning. It's an amazing story. I sure had never heard of it until now. And I'll bet there are many out there who haven't. Uh, so if you don't mind, uh, set the scene for us. Franklin, Kentucky. Share, if you could, what life would have been like there in the 1890s. Sure. Um, it was a fairly small town in a, in a rural area. You know, of course, the, this event happened uh, about nine miles southwest of Franklin. And, you know, it was a very rural area was, uh, along the banks of the Red River, uh, which flowed nearby. This is north of Nashville, about 110, 115 miles. Uh, folks there lived meager lives, uh, mostly farmers. Um, the uh, land was especially productive. They farmed tobacco. That was the major cash crop of the era. Uh, they you know, bought and sold tobacco left and right. If you were a, a person of color, if you were a black person, George Denning, for instance, was born into slavery in 1855, was not a slave at the time the the, this, this event occurred, but he lived a very meager lifestyle. He lived in a basically a, a two-story clapboard shack that he had built with his own hands. He raised 12 children uh, in that shack. They, you know, lived hand to mouth. There's a pretty meager existence, but he had earned enough since gaining his freedom. He had earned enough to purchase outright uh, 114 acres of land that he farmed. He had horses and a couple of cows and a couple of turkeys and some chickens and a few dogs. And, uh, and he farmed tobacco. He was a, a very respected citizen in the area and seemed to have very friendly relationships with his neighbors, both black and white. Absolutely. He had no criminal history um, there's no indication he ever had any run-ins with the law. Uh, he was, you know, he was friendly. He was a hardworking uh, farmer, um, sometimes a sharecropper. He would help bring in the tobacco for neighboring farms. He had done some work with uh, the man he eventually killed. Um, there is, yeah, no indication in the public record or from any interviews that I conducted that he had ever done wrong by his neighbors. And in fact, you know, after this event, 
you know, the first home he ran to was a home of a white friend. The second home he ran to was the home of another white friend. Uh, these were his people. This is who he lived among. He had grown up next door to many of them. And yeah, he was generally known as a good guy, although his reputation would be sullied uh, during the trial to convict him of manslaughter. So your, your book basically begins with an account of the events that transpired on the evening of January 21st, 1897, in Franklin, Kentucky. Would you walk us through that evening from the perspective of George Dinning? Sure. He chopped some wood, fed the fire, retired to his home, ate some dinner, um, saw his children off to bed. Many of them slept in the same room that he did. Um, only about half of his children were sleeping in his house that night. The rest were at his parents' home, not far away. And he eventually is startled by the dogs barking in the yard. Uh, his wife shakes him awake. He um, hears some voices outside. Eventually hears one of the men standing outside of his home call his name, George. George, he approaches the front door, doesn't open it, doesn't go outside, um, and he asks what the men are there for. They inform him that he has been uh, accused of stealing livestock from neighboring farms, and they inform him that it's time for him to leave. Depending on who you believe, uh, some of the testimony suggested that the man who was doing the talking, the white man who was doing the talking, Doc Moore, said, you need to get 50 miles away from here and don't stop until you, until you get there. Um, George Denning protested, which is powerful to me. I'm sorry, in this moment, uh, even though I've been with this material so long, to hear myself say that he protested, um, you know, brings to mind so much of what we see today. Uh, he protested. He said, no, I'm not coming out of this house. I'm not leaving. And he said, I can get my white neighbors to vouch for me. Uh, I haven't done any stealing. And the, the men there that day said, um, we know you've been doing some stealing. There was some argument back and forth. And at some point, one of them, I think, in reviewing the evidence, in reviewing the case, accidentally fired a shot through the back door of George Denning's house. And uh, this prompted more gunfire from the men standing outside. He grabbed his own rifle. And it should be said, this is five years after the famous journalist Ida B. Wells, who was an anti-lynching muckraker, uh, wrote in, a, in an editorial a Winchester rifle deserves a place of honor in every black home to protect us in, in a way that the law cannot and has not. And so George Denning grabbed his rifle, ran upstairs, uh, got shot in the arm on his way upstairs, uh, made it up to, his, to, the, to the room occupied by a couple of his daughters, and threw open the shutters, leaned out, 
just as a bullet grazed his scalp, causing, causing an injury that would be seen by uh, everyone who saw him in the next few days. Just, just as a bullet grazed his scalp, he fired off one shot of bird shot from his shotgun and he struck and killed uh, a man below. He didn't know he had killed anyone, but the man he had killed was the 32-year-old scion of the wealthiest farm family in southwestern Kentucky. This all happens in a matter of minutes, right? Yeah, this would have transpired in no more than about five or six minutes. It, it happened very quickly. At this point, a command is given by someone in the mob to open fire on the house, correct? The command was to squat and fire, and everyone who had guns there that day uh, did as ordered. They squat, squatted and fired upon George Denning's house, and his wife and children just took cover the best they could. Testimony would later suggest, testimony by his 12-year-old daughter, Eva, would suggest that, as she put it, the bullets went through my hair. George Denning himself thought that the men had thrown dynamite into the house, and he would later tell the first two neighbors that he spoke with that uh, that they had, they had thrown bombs or dynamite into his house because that's that's how it sounded, you know. And if you can imagine being in a situation like that where your own home is being fired upon by twenty five men, you know. What it, what it does, what we now know, is it prompts a surge of adrenaline. And what adrenaline does is reduce uh, the colloquial flow of blood. And so, you know, it's the same reason that, that often police empty their, empty their rounds, empty their magazines into suspects that when they're in fear, of, fear for their life, uh, it's because we lose our hearing because of that surge of adrenaline. And so he mistakenly thought that, that they had dynamited his house. And he told a few people later and it came up in trial, but this was an intense experience. If you could just put yourself in, in, you know, in a, in a a hand built two story log cabin for a moment and imagine it being fired upon by a good chunk of the 25 armed men who were there. It, it was, an intense experience and a wonder that more people didn't didn't get killed or injured. The men in the mob, when they realize that Jody Kahn has been seriously injured, fatally injured, just sort of slink off into the night, don't they? That's right. They uh, they retreated. Uh, George Denning um, ran out the back of his house and and ran uh, uh, some distance away where he thought he was safe. And he uh, threw himself down in some tall grass and laid on his back and listened to them retreat. We now know, uh, looking at the historic record and looking at interviews that George Denning did much later, we now know that he listened to them in those moments, consider, contemplate, and converse about setting fire to the house in, in that moment and burning the house down over uh, his wife and half of his children. Um, for whatever reason, they decided that they wouldn't do that. And 
they retreated that night uh, with the the wounded and and quickly dying uh, Jody Khan, and um, they knew he was dead. By the time uh, they tried to put him on 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 his horse, and they made it out to the road, and then he slumped off of his horse, and they knew they knew that he was dead at that point. They carried him the rest of the way to uh, to to a neighbor's house uh, to try to treat his wounds. They stuffed his wounds with whiskey and cotton, uh, but couldn't couldn't bring him back, and he he um, he he died, and that set that set in motion the entire rest of the story. So George Dinning runs to a couple of neighbors' homes trying to figure out what to do. And in that process, he learns that he had killed Jody Kahn. So he goes and turns himself in to the sheriff. He walked uh, nine miles to the county seat, Franklin, Kentucky, the seat of Simpson County, and turned himself over to the sheriff, which was a rare thing at that time. Not a rare thing necessarily, but a um, a courageous thing to do in in the sense that he uh, he trusted the sheriff. He had had some dealings with the sheriff in the past, but he trusted the sheriff with his life because in that era, it was often the case that if anyone was suspected of a crime, and it could be a crime as minor as being uppity or, you know, you know, being accused of thievery or something like that. So th- this crime was much worse, killing a white man, killing a, a member of the lynch party. And so for him to turn himself over to the sheriff meant trusting his own life to a system that had betrayed many people before. You know, it was not uncommon for uh, black men to be taken out of jail for the jailer to sort of just hand over the keys to the lynch mob uh, for the mob. Sometimes if the jailer was resistant to uh, force their way into the jail and, and uh, abduct the prisoners in that fashion. Um, so giving himself up and putting himself in a place where the mob knew he would be, you know, sort of a public building took real trust in the system of justice. Many of of these men who had come to George Dinning's home, it would be established later, were very closely connected to each other. A lot of family ties. They were. um, They were all neighbors, and many of them shared uh, familial connections. Wives were sisters. Sisters were uh, you know, married, married to members of the mob, et cetera. So th- these were guys who um, not only shared family ties, but also knew George Denning, most of them for most, if not all of his life. After George Denning turns himself in, his wife and children are, are basically on their own. What happens to them? Where do they go? Uh, a handful of members of the same mob returned the following morning and essentially held hostage his family. And I think they were waiting for him to come back. They, they were um, staying inside of the house, looking out the windows, waiting for George Denning to come back in the event he didn't 
actually turn himself in. Uh, and when they realized he wasn't going to return, they demanded his wife and children leave the property, ride 50 miles and, and not return. And so they put the wife and the kids, there were six kids on horseback. One of them was very, very ill. They had meager belongings that they were able to, to take from the house. And they rode uh, across the state line into Tennessee, into a place called Blackjack, Tennessee, where Molly Denning had some family. And they, they wound up staying there for quite a while. The mob, meanwhile, set fire to George Denning's house, his barn, and his gear house, and to his fields. And so everything he had worked for, you know, pretty much for all of his free life was destroyed. When we come back, George Denning faces a murder trial, and a twist in the case shocks the local community. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Back again. So news of this spreads quickly. 
even the, the governor of Kentucky, uh, Governor Bradley, heard what happened almost immediately. And there were lots of mixed emotions from people in Kentucky. Some sided with the mob, but many defended Dinning, primarily because he was defending himself, his family, and his home. Yeah, the first newspaper articles were very prejudiced against him. Um, they cast him as the assailant. Uh, you know, they uh, said things like um, a group of men, uh, a group of citizens were ambushed last night at Price's Mill, Kentucky, uh, by a black assailant, uh, things like that. And that was not that was not how it happened at all. The way the press treated this case in its early days was very typical for the press at the time. Uh, assume George Denning had done something wrong, paint the white men as the the victims in this case, the do-gooders. You know, all the language was, of course, coded. He was a cold, dark Negro, things like that. We look at this in hindsight, and it's just the shame, shameful treatment of a situation like this. But what that did was give rise to this community anger. The way the story was presented gave rise to a renewed sort of mob sensibility and an anger on the part of the white people from that region who banded together and tried to kill George Denning. And they pursued him you know, the sheriff moved him from Franklin County to Bowling Green, where he was in jail in Bowling Green. And the mob activity got so intense that the jailer at Bowling Green decided it was best to arm the other prisoners in the jail so they could protect George Denning if the mob tried to burst in. Uh, he was eventually moved to Louisville. And um, there's some indication that the mob tried to get him from there. And this is a long ways away from Franklin, Kentucky. So the, the danger was ever present for him while he was in custody. Would you tell us about Governor Bradley's involvement in the case? Governor Bradley was a progressive Republican, and he was a man who enjoyed the good favor of the black citizens of Kentucky but didn't do much to sort of earn it. He wasn't a, a politician in the sense that he pandered in a way that might help him get the black vote. Instead, he acted on principle. And this was uh, celebrated by black men and women in Kentucky at the time. So when Bradley heard of the Denning case, which was very quickly after, you know, after Denning turned himself in, uh, he began immediately communicating with the sheriff of Simpson County and then eventually the jailer and the sheriff uh, in Bowling Green and Warren County to make sure that Denning was safe. And he was most concerned with making sure Denning was safe during his trial. And so about six months after Denning turned himself in, uh, they finally brought him to trial uh, he had he had you know spent all that time in jail in Louisville, uh, but Bradley dispatched uh, two units of uh, home guard to 
essentially take care of George Denning to make sure that he didn't get lynched. And they put themselves at great danger during the trial. Men threw dynamite at them. Several men took pot shots at the soldiers. There were some injuries. This was not a safe situation for anybody. These guys were trying to actively lynch George Denning during his own criminal trial. So this trial is, it's fascinating. Uh, Denning seemed to have a pretty good lawyer, um, but it was an uphill battle. And one of the main reasons was that the mob participants all met before the trial and conspired to align their stories, right? Yeah. Yeah, there is clear evidence that, uh, that we know now that they had met before the trial, before they actually... So one, one of the interesting issues was uh, in order to bring charges against George Denning for the killing of Jody Kahn, these men had to come public, right? They, they were the only people there who were witnesses. And so the lynch mob itself had to, had to go public in order to convict George Denning. And doing that, they ran the risk of subjecting themselves later, well, first of all, to public ridicule if the, you know, if the, if the papers turned on them, because what they had done was wrong. They were, you know, regulating. They were trying to lynch. And so they ran the risk of, of ridicule in their own community, first of all. And then beyond that, uh, they ran the risk of subjecting themselves to eventually damages. And that's what happened because they stepped forward in order to bring an indictment against George Denning. You know, that, that means they had to admit that they were there that night to uh, scare him off. And so they shaped their story in such a way that made them seem like they were peaceful neighbors who had just come to tell him to stop stealing. And uh, this is what they all testified to, uh, that they weren't there to do any harm, even though three quarters of them were armed. They testified that they weren't disguising themselves, even though one of them had his face covered with a handkerchief, Doc Moore, the guy who did the talking. They uh, cast George Denning as a person of ill repute, a bad character, they said over and over and they were successful in the initial case in, uh, in criminal court. George Dinning testified on his own behalf, correct? He did, and his testimony is powerful. It is the, the testimony of a man who had, who had been shot both in the arm and the forehead, uh, who had been betrayed in that way by men that he knew and worked with and saw daily. And his testimony stands, in my mind, as uh, one of the more courageous acts of the civil rights movement. <laughs> you know, this predates the modern civil rights movement, but to take the stand and testify against your would-be lynchers in 1897 should not be given short shrift. No, definitely not. 
you write in your book that it is a very unique time in the South, the mid-1890s, when many Southern states were swept up briefly in the national progressive movement. That's right. And and Bill Bradley sort of fit into that as well. There, there were a number of progressive governors in the South at the time who recognized that the only way to move forward after the Civil War and after Reconstruction uh, was to do right by the Black community. And unfortunately, this was very short-lived. Uh, I think the end of it came about in the mid-19-teens with the second rise of the Klan and certainly the rise of, of uh, the early 20th century rise of white supremacy, which reared its ugly head again. So during the trial, a lot of the men who he thought were on good terms with him turned on him. But there were one or two, right, who, who sort of defended him. There were a few neighbors who said, you know, what they knew, including the the sort of mixed testimony of the guy that he first went to, his closest neighbor whose house he showed up at to show him the bullet wounds. And that testimony was was legit and honest. And I feel like um, a lot of those guys who, uh, who testified to the truth, testified on his behalf, would sort of later betray him a little bit by saying that his character wasn't good, uh, wasn't regarded as good. And those were, in my mind, people who were scared of the payback they might get after this trial was all over when they had to return down to the rural part of Simpson County, Kentucky, uh, and live alongside the men who had done this uh, terrible act. So Dinning was found guilty of manslaughter, correct, and sentenced to seven years of hard labor. By an all-white jury, all men, uh, guilty of manslaughter, sent to Eddyville uh, to, yeah, to serve seven years hard labor. But he only ended up serving two weeks of his sentence. Because of Governor Bill Bradley, who who was responding in large part to outpouring of letters from men and women, both black and white, mostly white, uh, who demanded that Bradley pardon George Denning. These were people who saw the injustice in the situation and who knew that Denning had done nothing more than protect himself, protect his family. And it um, gives rise to this idea that at that time, the Castle Doctrine even outweighed race. Uh, Some people who might otherwise harshly judge a person of color in that era decided that, that this was wrong, that you cannot penetrate a person's home. You cannot attack a person of any color in his home and get away with it. But it's just a huge number of letters from people who cared for this guy and saw the injustice and wrote to the governor and said, pardon him now. And among them was a guy named Bennett Young who sent a telegraph 
to the governor that said, don't let the sun set before you pardon George Denning. Yeah, and he becomes an important figure later on in this story. Despite this quick pardon and people across the state coming to Denning's aid, he was still in danger locally, correct? And they had to keep his release quiet for for at least a day to get him out of town. Yeah, that's exactly right. They um, they didn't want the the mob to know that he had been freed because uh, the mob would have come after him. There's no doubt. Where does George Dinning go once he is freed? Well, he had nothing to return to in uh, Simpson County because his home was gone, his fields were gone, his family was gone. And so he headed north to Louisville uh, with the idea that he might make a home there. And he was received by some friends of his. He was sent on a bit of a a speaking circuit among the black churches and black clubs, like the the Odd Fellows, they raised money for him, took up offerings, set him on a path to success. They lionized him. By the way, you know this was the first black man who had ever been pardoned uh, for committing manslaughter against the white man, and. His courage was celebrated by all the black churches. And he began on that on that speaking circuit, he began occasionally talking in a public way about trying to get revenge on the men who had done him wrong, on the men who had burned his house down. And this became public because the newspapers were reporting it, that he would say things like he, he wanted retribution. And, uh, and that, that made its way all the way down to, to Simpson County and, you know, the neighboring counties. And he also revealed during an interview where he planned to live with his family. He said he was trying to move to Jeffersonville and uh, eventually he, you know, had a, found a home there. Yeah, that, that news and information got out as well. Did he seem concerned at all with with his own safety during this time? Not according to the interviews that I've read. The handful of reporters who found him, who were able to talk to him, uh, he wasn't super concerned. He he was trying to make a life, trying to get his wife and kids up there. The family lore has it that you know they eventually joined him in Jeffersonville, but that they crossed the Ohio River in barrels, hiding in barrels. And I don't know if this is upon some barge or actually floating in barrels across the river, but, uh, you know, this was a a very frequent transportation route for the Underground Railroad uh, from Louisville to Jeffersonville. And so it doesn't strike me as something that's impossible to believe that Molly and the kids would have been ferried across the river, hiding in actual barrels. So one day when Dinning was out walking along an abandoned road, he was ambushed. Yeah, that's right. And uh, to this day, we don't know who 
his assailants were. Unfortunately, they were never arrested. I'm not sure the police ever even took it seriously, uh, but he was attacked. Someone crushed his head in with a brick. Someone gouged his eye out and he was left for dead. And uh, what, what I do know is uh, basically just from the medical record that the ambulance took a nearly lifeless man to the nearby hospital. And um, he stayed there for quite some time and uh, recovered. They thought he was dead, but, but he eventually recovered. He never regained his eye. He was from that point on without an eye, but you know, his wounds healed and he was able to proceed uh, with his federal lawsuit. How does Dinning actually connect with Bennett Young? How does Young come to represent him? I don't know the answer to that question. I wish I could have found that specifically. I think Bennett Young's papers have been, have been what, what's left of them have been lost. But I know they met at some at some point while Denning was living in in Louisville, and there seems to be indication to me, if you read between the lines of a one newspaper article, that when Denning delivered a speech at the Fifth Street Baptist Church, that Bennett Young would have been there. And Bennett Young, interestingly, was a former Confederate soldier and. You know, we, we can talk about him in depth if you want, but he had founded, after the war, he had founded a black orphanage. Uh, he had many black friends. He took on the cases of black men and women pro bono and represented them in federal court. So I, I'm almost certain that the first mention of Denning suing his, suing his attackers that Bennett Young would have been at that event and and the two of them would have met there. So Bennett Young is a very complicated character. On one hand, he chooses to represent Dinning. He he contributes tremendously to, to black charities. But on the other hand, he is very proud of his Confederate heritage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, he did more than any man of his era to promote the idea of the lost cause after the Civil War. Uh, The reason all of our statuary exists is because of Bennett Young, who led the Confederate Veterans Association for 20 years, um, the most notable 20 years in the history of that organization. He raised the money to build the Jefferson Davis Memorial, which is the tallest phallus outside of Washington, D.C., tallest phallic memorial, I should say. He uh, gave the keynote speech at the unveiling of the statue of General Lee in downtown New Orleans in 1919. Um, This was a guy who promoted the Confederate cause at every opportunity. And that's what we're, you know, was best friends with Minnie Davis, Jeff Davis's daughter, right up until her death. Gave her eulogy, even. She was the founder of the the Daughters of the Confederate Veterans. Um, so, you know, so this was a guy who had, 
who had the South on his mind, the memorialization of the South on his mind um, for his entire life and, and, and had fought for the South and, in fact, led the northernmost land action in the Civil War, which was a, ra- a Confederate raid from Canada into New Albans, Vermont, led by Bennett Young, who passed himself off as a tourist, stayed a night in a hotel as his colleagues also came down and checked in to hotels, convinced the people of New Albans to show him around, show him the horses and guns. And he was suggesting they were going to go hunting the next day. And uh, at high noon, they bust into all the banks in a coordinated fashion and uh, demanded the money and then uh, proceeded to hold the whole town hostage until they fled back up into Canada and were eventually imprisoned. And anyways, I mention all this because this was a guy who was a true son of the South throughout his whole life. And it does complicate his legacy because the things he did sort of fly in the face of that idea as we consider it now. He rewrote the Kentucky Constitution, removing slavery by his own hand, recognizing that slavery was wrong. Uh, He represented pro bono men and women like George Denning, black men and women, and he founded that orphanage for black children, which, uh, you know, spent part of the book trying to understand this guy. Like, how do you balance that? And I'm not sure I do a good job. So what is the the strategy going into this trial? How do they think they can win a case against the members of this mob? Um, To, um, you know, essentially make make George Denning a sympathetic character and also to make to make the point that this is not Kentucky anymore, that that mob justice flies in the face of actual justice, uh, that these men had no right to be where they were and to assault a man inside of his own home. Bennett Young plays on all these points, and he also was a great orator. Uh, and I think about this as I like stumble around trying to tell this story. This guy was uh, a glorious speaker. And so, um, you know, th- there, there are stories about him in the newspapers that suggest other lawyers and even citizens would come in and pack the courtroom to hear him deliver a keynote address and so he gave this case all of that gusto. Um, he filed suit against all the lynchers who had, would be lynchers who had been named and proceeded against them with every ounce of his energy. I mean, lynching was, was so common during this time. Um, the men who showed up at Dinning's house probably never expected in a million years that they would ever receive any kind of retribution for what they had done. It must have just shocked the heck out of them. It, it certainly did. And to be on the losing end of that certainly shocked them as well. When the verdict was revealed that these men would be held responsible for um, uh, 
you know, for what they had done uh, to the tune of $50,000. It was not well received. Uh, in fact, one of them just a, a very short time later committed suicide. The others scrambled to declare bankruptcy to try to protect their holdings from uh, imposition by that verdict. So th this was a, a tough thing for all of them. So you write in your book that, that one of the fears that many of these Southern white vigilantes had was that Dinning's victory would inspire other black people to fight back against these kinds of actions in the courts. And it actually happened just that way for a while. It did. This set a, a, a bit of a precedent. And others uh, took the example that George Denning set and, and used it to their own uh, benefit. And um, there's no, I'm not trying to make the argument in the book that this did anything at all to uh, interrupt lynching. In fact, the early 19th century, uh, I'm sorry, the early 20th century was, you know, saw a spike in vigilante justice and lynching and things like that. But this did give uh, some people the idea that access to the court could help. And this, this wasn't the case that stopped lynching. I wish it was, but it absolutely wasn't. Uh, but others found a similar type of justice by, by pursuing it in federal court after George Denning. So what happened to George Denning and his family after he won that suit? I mean, $50,000 is a lot of money in 1900. It certainly is. It was equal to about $1.2 million today. Uh, unfortunately, they never collected much of it. Um, you know, so far as I could tell in court records, uh, they collected somewhere in the neighborhood of $2,000 out of $50,000. Uh, he was able to relocate, reestablish his family in Jeffersonville, Indiana, you know, they f fell on a hardship just like all of us do. Uh, he had trouble getting a job, wound up working as a teamster, which, you know, not, not a union teamster. That's uh, how we think of that now, but actually like um, a, a um, livestock driving teamster. His family, who I connected with, you know, they, they're all doing pretty well. I, I got along in a great way with uh, Anthony Denning, George Denning's great-grandson. Anthony lives in Indianapolis and owns his own barbershop. He's a collector of antiques, which I thought was kind of cool because I also collect antiques. George Denning died around the year 1940, uh, and he it's unknown where his burial is. And this is sort of the the loose end of this book. Uh, we don't know where he was buried. Evidently a flood destroyed a bunch of burial records in 1932. Um, so his family knows the cemetery, but there's no headstone. There's no marker. And so there is a marker for Molly and their offspring. Molly died a few years later. So her marker exists, but you know, it's so important that, look, we, 
we can't remember the past if we don't know where the past is. And I think this is reflected in the absence of his headstone. This didn't happen to white people. Like white cemeteries aren't paved over like like black cemeteries are. They're not built over like black cemeteries are. And this is happening all over the South. We're just now coming to terms with this, by the way, with a lot of good-hearted anthropologists and archaeologists who are doing serious work to try to identify black cemeteries that have been, you know, built upon often by the federal government. Um, anyways, the fact that Denning's grave is lost, uh, is just heartbreaking to me and also par for the course. So I hope in resurrecting his story that, that maybe this gives us some motivation to find and identify his grave, uh, at a minimum, so we can uh, put up some kind of uh, a marker that acknowledges his role in the civil rights movement, even though he precedes the modern civil rights movement, but his role in uh, the progress uh, made by people of color in the U.S. in, in the past hundred years. One of the, the things that really struck me while reading your book was the impression I got of George Dinning's demeanor during the whole ordeal. In the face of danger, the threat of death, he remained very strong, very stoic, and he seemed confident that he would receive justice despite the odds against him. Yeah, and, uh, you know, part of the impression that you got from that, I appreciate that, but part of it is um, quite simply the lack of 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 uh, a personal account of this, you know, so the evidence that we have that he was stoic come from a handful of newspaper articles that were written about him, where the reporter actually interviewed him with an open mind and left some quotes for us all to consider, but couldn't read or write. And I don't think he ever learned. Uh, And so in lieu of personal papers and journals and things like that, we have to lean on the public record to understand him. And in the public record, he is reflected as a stoic, resolute man who just trusted the system and tried with everything he had to lean on the system to exact justice. I know this, this might be speculation, but what do you think the motive was for those men in going to his house that night and accusing him of stealing when there was zero evidence of him stealing anything. Did, did they want to take his land, do you think, or just drive another black family out of the area? Did you get a sense of what the true motive might really have been? Absolutely. I think they, they one of them wanted his land. And, you know, this played out over and over again in the South. You can read about it in a book called Buried in Bitter Waters. That This was not uncommon. Black people would be run off their property and the white people would just move in and take over. And, you know, in, in the 1870s, the Freedmen's Bureau established uh, a system for the distribution of public land to freed slaves to black people. This is not how George Denning came by his property, but it's how a lot of black men and women came by 
a chunk of land. It wasn't 40 acres and a mule, but it was land grants. And, uh, you know, and they farmed and they worked peacefully. And so often when that land gained any kind of value, they were run off and often by vigilantes. And so I think that, you know, it holds true to that pattern that George Denning, his land was coveted. It was a great piece of property right on the banks of the Red River. And he was stood, he stood alone as a black landowner down in that part of Kentucky. And so I don't think there's any doubt that these guys just wanted to run him off and take his property. So what eventually happened to his land? You know, he, he said that, you know, late in life in that article that he was intending to sell his land, but that would have required traveling back to Simpson County, Kentucky. And there's no indication that he ever did. Uh, that land was eventually offered up at tax sale and bought by a family in that area and a family that also was connected to some of the members of the Lynch party. We had George Denning's family on a, a group call uh, just the other day with a library in Topeka, Kansas. And someone asked, do you feel like justice was served? And to a person, there were about a half dozen Dennings on this call and they all turned their microphones on and, and to a person, everyone said no. Justice was not served, even with the verdict of $50,000 in damages. They said, that was our land. And they've you know, never been able to return to it. And they were relocated. They were dispatched. Their bloodline was broken. And so, you know, he stayed in Simpson County and uh, that land was claimed by white people. So your book has just been released and you have a website as well. Please tell us where people can get your book and find out more about you. Yeah, sure. Uh, the book is available wherever books are sold, hopefully, uh, including your local bookshop, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com. And uh, my website is benmontgomerywrites.com. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at gangrey, G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, or on Instagram at ben underscore rights. And, uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been so fascinating. Eric, thank you for the, for the wonderful questions. And uh, I really appreciate your time. Again, my guest has been Ben Montgomery. And once again, his book is called A Shot in the Moonlight, How a Freed Slave and a Confederate Soldier Fought for Justice in the Jim Crow South. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.